Welcome to Better Than Nothing. What you are about to hear is just me being able to speak with some amazing people that come from many walks of life. This episode of Better Than Nothing is brought to you by Concept by Iowa Hearing. Your hearing is our priority. Visit iowahearing.com or call 877-955-4020 for a free hearing screening. That's 877-955-4020. Our guest today is a colorful gentleman from Louisiana. Now that may be redundant that I've never met a person from Louisiana that wasn't colorful. But Dr. Michael Strain is the Louisiana Commissioner of Agriculture and Forestry. Doctor, how are you, sir? Man, I am doing great. It's a beautiful day. You know, we've got finally got a break in the rainfall and we're going to have a nice 10 days coming ahead. And so right now, you know, our average temperatures are in the high 80s. It will get up to 98 or 99 degrees this week in some areas of the state. So a little uncommon, uncommonly hot, but the skies are beautiful and we are in full swing harvest. Louisiana is south of most all of us. And we kind of envy you at times for your mild winters, but we also uh, know you have the challenges of a tropical environment much of the year. So for people in the in the far northern reaches of the country, you know, up around uh, northern Arkansas, Missouri, and uh, Iowa. Uh, tell us harvest right now. What are the major crops coming out? Oh, the major crops coming out right now, uh, we are harvesting soybeans right now. And so we've gotten 95, 96% of our corn harvested. We are probably at about 60 plus percent of our soybeans. So right now, really a push on soybeans on cotton, getting the rest of our rice harvested, and planting sugarcane. Also, it's time to start harvesting sweet potatoes. So with the weather conditions are right, we'll be starting that very soon. You know, we're expecting the next market report out by this afternoon, uh, which is the crop progress and condition report that they give us, you know, an up-to-date, you know, position where we're at. But I think, you know, just most of the commodities now will be harvested probably in the next 10 days. We expect all of our cane to be planted with, within the next two weeks. And we're going to start grinding season, which is sugarcane harvest. We call it grinding season because you grind the cane. That is going to begin in about a week and then probably go into the first week of January. Well, we are recording this on the 19th of September to give people a, uh, a date here of, of what it's like in um your temperatures and ours in the Midwest are not too far off, but ours are supposed to plunge into the 40s by the middle of this week. So you're not going to get any of that as of yet, and may you not get any of that uh, for the uh, abrupt change that it causes in your life. Tell me about sugarcane, the life cycle of sugarcane. A lot of us know of it. We use it, but we don't know really how it's grown. Sugarcane is a five-year crop. And so it's an amazing we you know plant we've been planting sugarcane here now for 200 years as we say raising cane for 200 years first brought here by the Jesuits uh, there and first planted actually in New Orleans right in front of St Louis Cathedral they use it for medicinal rum you know for religious purposes of course mm-hmm. and then yes and it moved and the first plantation was where uh, Audubon Park is the Audubon Sugar Plantation 
and we developed the technology to crystallize sugar by Edna de Bourier, and that was done here in Louisiana, actually at the same plantation where Audubon Park now stands. And so what you do is that the first year you, you plant the cane, it's called plant cane, and then that next year the, from the plant cane, you will harvest, and that will become the next cane that you plant. Remember, it's in the ground five years. And so then in the second year, third year, and fourth year, we call that stubble. So the second year, third year, and fourth year stubble, you harvest for the sugar. One of the remarkable things with the new research and extension, the new varieties, is that uh, in the second, third, and fourth now, in, in many of the, the newer varieties being developed, the amount of sugar will not diminish each year. Generally, after the fourth year, uh, then it is plowed under and the land is left fallow, that section. So when you look at a sugar cane field, you have the plant cane, you have the first year, you know, really second year and third year of harvest and a second, third and fourth year stubble, then you will have a fallow field. And of course, so it's all going in a cycle uh, continuous. So it's, it, again, it's a five-year crop, but there's different parts of it each year. And with the sugar, each farm has an allotment they have to make every day to the mill because most of the mills are co-ops. Some are privately owned, but most are co-ops. And every day a farmer has to deliver his allotment, his quota to the mill, because we fire the mills up generally using natural gas. But once it's rolling, the boilers are cooking and we're making sugar, then what we do is that we run it off the bagasse. That's what runs the boilers. And so that's why you can't shut it down until you are done. And then, then of course, when they shut the mills down, then they start maintenance in them for next year. So we make a, a turbinata, a brown sugar, what we call raw sugar. And the raw sugar is what you see at about 36 cents a pound. And then that goes to make white sugar. Most of the sugar mills here are in a cooperative with the producers of the white sugar, 50-50 cooperative. And most of the farmers are in a cooperative with the mill. So except for the privately owned mills, most of the farmers have an interest in sugar from the field all the way until white sugar. So it's a remarkable system. Uh, and again, we expect about on the farm this year, about $1.3 billion. And that will be the value of the brown sugar and the molasses. Are you the largest cane sugar producer in the country? We are now. Uh, we have now exceeded Florida in the amount of sugar that we produce. Florida still has a few more acres, but our net sugar now has eclipsed Florida. So we're the largest sugar producer in the nation of cane sugar. Well, I don't want to get into another civil war, but how do you and the sugar beet growers of the North get along? Well, we get along fine. We get along very, very fine. A lot of the sugar programs are designed because, you know, the, the sugar beets aren't quite as efficient as our sugar cane, but they're grown in a colder climate. We have the advantage of climate. And we have the advantage of the richest soil in the world here, our rich alluvial soil and abundant moisture. And so we have an advantage there. And as long as there's a sugar program and the sugar beet people are in business, we will do just fine. And so again, it's a partnership across America. And sugar is sugar. That's the big thing. Sugar is sugar. And sugar is not high fructose corn syrup. Look, I love corn too. But high fructose corn syrup is just that. It's not sugar. And so when you start looking at it, our sugar program is great. And it is rare to ever that the sugar program uh, has any cost to the taxpayers at all. And the one time that it did in the last 20 years is because Mexico was dumping refined sugar on the American market and calling it raw sugar. 
and we were able to prove that and put a stop to it. Well, Dr. Strain, I said that because, uh, and I haven't explained, that you are also a veterinarian. I understand you got a degree in 1983, and your wife also a veterinarian. And before you got into uh, government, uh, you were both practicing veterinarians. Uh, you took the big animals, she took the small ones. That's right, and we still have a large veterinary practice. Uh, when I was in private practice working every day, it was a five-doctor practice. And so I did predominantly large animal, but I also did small animal and small equine uh, orthopedics. In other words, any a foal under 500 pounds. I was the orthopod for long bone surgeries. So what I did, I did equine practice, but I also did I had a large food animal practice. But the majority of the food animals were on strain farms. So we had more cattle in my practice that we owned than all my other clients combined. Uh, but, but I did a lot of horses as well. And then I did, you know, specialized. I, I took some courses at the Ohio State uh, in surgery, bone surgery, and advanced bone surgery. And so, you know, in a, in a, in a large practice, you have subspecialization. But I practiced, and we went at it seven days a week for more than 20 years. And believe it or not, this May, May the 15th, uh, I will have been in private practice now for 40 years. And so that's, and it doesn't seem like 40 years. It has come in a blink of an eye. And I love private practice. And I really had no intention of running for politics, but my predecessor, Big Bill Strain, who had been there in the House of Representatives for 28 years, uh, died acutely in office and qualifying was two weeks later. I qualified in my practice area, in my large animal practice area, and was elected in the first primary. I was elected on Saturday and went to work on a Monday. And that was now 20-something years ago, another blink of the eye. I started, you know, in the state legislature in 1999. But for many years, I was the legislative liaison for the Veterinary Medical Association. And that's how I got familiar uh, with the legislative process. But if Big Bill Strain, who died young, he died premature at the age of 58, was still alive, I'd probably still be out, you know, in large animal rural practice, which I truly love. Let's take a moment to talk with Taylor Parker, who's the president of Concept by Iowa Hearing. Taylor, I've had your hearing aids for the last 17 years, and certainly they made a positive difference in my life. I'd like to ask you something about the modern day, though, and the research that you have found. Is there a link between an uncorrected hearing loss and dementia? Uh, yes, there is. The research came out about 10 years ago from Johns Hopkins University, uh, Dr. Frank Lynn. He found that you were anywhere from two to five times more likely to develop dementia with an untreated hearing loss. And, you know, everyone says, well, how can that be? And when you think about how hearing works, sound comes into the ear, it hits the eardrum, eardrum vibrates, sends the signal over three little bones, the bones then send the signal to the cochlea that has 15,000 tiny little hairs inside of there. Those little hairs, as they get damaged, will, will either break off, get brittle, not move as well. The correct signal doesn't get to the brain. And think about it, you know, like, um, you know, radio, TV, any kind of signal, that signal gets jumbled. You can't piece together what's being said, so you struggle to watch the show. That is your brain with an untreated hearing loss. What happens is your brain pulls from two areas to compensate for that untreated hearing loss. It pulls from cognitive and it pulls from balance and gait. 
So cognitive being how we understand, how we converse, that gets actually damaged because it's getting pulled from to focus on an untreated hearing loss. That's where the link to dementia actually comes in. So it's because we're pulling valuable resources to focus on an untreated hearing loss, it speeds up that that aging of the brain. So you're anywhere from, even with a mild hearing loss, you're twice as likely to develop dementia. Taylor, thank you very much. You can schedule your free hearing screening at Concept by Iowa Hearing, 877-955-4020, or online at iowahearing.com. What are the challenges that you see now for the veterinary industry? I know it's swung from large animal to small animal because there are smaller numbers of larger farms, and many of those are almost totally self-sufficient. What are the challenges, including that one, are you finding for veterinarians to set up a practice and serve the clientele that need them? Well, there are very few large animal practitioners graduating from our veterinary schools. You know, when I went, I was able to go and work my way through veterinary school. My wife graduated with a small amount of debt. But now these students are graduating with large amounts of debt such that they cannot afford to go into a rural farm practice. You simply can't generate enough income to pay for the technology, pay for the equipment, pay for the vehicles and pay your student loans. And there are much fewer large animal veterinarians. So the ones that are there have to drive great distances. They can't see as many clients. And so it's very, very difficult. The whole model has changed. And then again, we still, it's still a challenge to get small animal practitioners into the practices. Uh, because, you know, when I graduated from veterinary school, you know, you know I, was, I went to school with one of the first female graduates of Texas A&M, uh, Nancy O'Malley. She was working on a master's degree in, in my class, and that was in 1979. You know, but prior to us, the veterinary profession was all men. And you were expected when you graduated, you would go back into your to a hometown, your rural area, wherever, and you would do large animal practice. And then as you got older and the, and the, the new guy got out back then, they would take over that large animal practice. And then you could go into a small animal practice as you got older, you know, and didn't have the, you know, the physical abilities it takes, you know, for a very hard, large, large animal practice. But all that has changed. And so that whole paradigm has changed. And now we find ourselves, especially with the new rules on the restriction of use of antimicrobials, only by the order of a licensed veterinarian and the veterinary feed directive, where there's a great need for rural, you know, large animal veterinarians, but there's a great shortage of them as well. But also you have to address the cost factor. You know, my first new practice vehicle, my, you know, and I'd been out a couple of years, was a Chevy Suburban. I paid $11,500 for off the lot. Tax, total license, everything. Now that machine would probably be $70,000. My first x-ray machine was $3,200. Now they're like $70,000. And so when you start looking at all these costs, it is diff- you know, it's difficult. And that's why you have these large group practices. But they also have to have a way to generate sufficient income to pay student debt and pay the cost to run these practices. Dr. Strain, you uh, have been the uh, Louisiana Commissioner of Agriculture since uh, 2008. Is that an elected political job? Yes, it is. I'm elected. I'm a constitutional officer of the state. 
And I'm the commissioner of agriculture. I'm the commissioner of forestry. I'm the commissioner of office of metrology, weights, measures, and standards. I'm the commissioner of agriculture and consumer services, which means, you know, I regulate all of the grain elevators and, and, and that sort of thing, all the grains, all the commodities. I'm the commissioner of agriculture and environmental sciences. So all the restricted use chemicals and that cooperative agreement with the Environmental Protection Agency flows through that office as well. So we regulate all aspects of the pest control industry, all aspects of aerial applicators or any type of restricted use chemicals. You know, I'm the commissioner of horticulture. So the entire plant industry, we regulate that as well. We have over 24,000 licenses there. I'm the commissioner of soil and water conservation. So I'm responsible to work with our 44 soil and water conservation districts and administer more than $100 million a year in federal dollars. I'm the commissioner of animal health and food safety. So everything from the livestock markets to the board of animal health and food safety. You know, we have our own agriculture finance authority and ag bank. Uh, we have everything from the Alexander State Forest to food distribution. So I have 26 commissions and we have about 560 employees and 500 people on boards and commissions. And the bottom line is it's a very large agency that's in, under the Constitution. I'm charged with all functions for agriculture promotion, uh, for protection uh, and and also advancement and everything else under my umbrella. So just about anything you buy, sell, consume, move, whatever, we oversee and have a part in the regulation to make sure we have an orderly commerce and also that the products are all safe. Do you find there's any contradiction in what your duties are? Because as I looked it up, it is you're responsible for promoting, protecting, and advancing agriculture and forestry uh, and soil and water, as well as regulating it. How you know, I was you... at, I was asked that question uh, by uh, Miss McCarthy, who was the head of the EPA one time in Washington D.C. Gina McCarthy, can, yes, uh, yes, Miss Gina, and and said, "How can you promote and regulate at the same time?" I said, "It's a separate and distinct function." And so, no, I do not have that conflict. We have one rule here, do what's right, follow the law. You follow the law, the politics take care of itself. And so, you know, we are doing everything. We do what is fair. But most of my regulatory authorities come through a board of commission. I have more than 20 different regulatory boards. And so it's pretty much for me hands off until they have the findings of the boards, half of which are what we call sovereign boards. So I don't even, I don't get an input there. I just have to make sure the board conducts its affairs in a proper fashion. The other half I have oversight over and they bring me a recommendation. And if my decision is different than their recommendation, then in writing, I must tell them why. And so it, it depends on the issue, but at the end of the day, you know, we do what's fair. We do what's right. We protect the public. Well, Ms. McCarthy didn't ask you that question as nicely as we did. Did she? I no. She was no, on no, her no, way to trying to make a point that was against you. Well, when she asked the question, we were in a discussion with the regulators on, you know, issues with the EPA. And so the, the enforcement division, the EPA, just couldn't understand how I could be an enforcer and a promoter at the same time. And we had that discussion. But, I mean, that's what the Constitution says. But my promotion boards and my enforcement boards are separate and distinct entities as well. Is a part of the capability that you have, I mean, you rattle all this stuff off, but it seems to me <laughs> agriculture itself 
wants to do what's right. And agriculture is, is an industry that uh, I guess believes, <laughs> believes that it should be, they, they should be good citizens. And so they want to conduct themselves in a, in a good manner, except for just a few. And they want you to go after those few. Is it that too simple? Well, no, I don't think that's too simple because if you look at what we want to do at agriculture, you know, you know, we take great pride in agriculture and there's nothing more American than mom and apple pie and that's agriculture. And so we look at sustainability, what we're doing. We want to grow our base, grow our ability, you know, to produce food. And also we are vital members of the community and we're also generational. You know, my family has been in farming in St. Tammany Parish. I'm fifth generation. I hope my children will become sixth generation. And like I say, you know, we plant our feet in the ground. Our roots are in the ground, on the farm, in the community. And that's why I've never left my community. I'm still there. And no matter what the job offers have been, you know, I, you know, I went home and I'm still home. Well, I'm home some of the time right now, but I still am connected to my home in St. Tammany Parish. But I come here to Baton Rouge most days to work. But we are part of that community. And when you look at the American people, trust us. The world trusts us. That's why the world wants to buy food from America, because we trust it. And look, we're often very leery about buying food products from anywhere outside of America because we're a little hesitant. Well, there's a reason for that. And so, you know, you have a you in any entity, you have a few bad actors, but there are remedies for that. And we enforce those. And so, you know, a lot of times, I, you know, I may, you know, if I may know the person, but I still have to sign the consent. Dr. Michael Strain is our guest, the Louisiana Commissioner of Agriculture. You're farmers in Louisiana today, and I'm trying to have commonality with farmers everywhere, but just get your perspective. What are they facing that are the biggest problems they're telling you? I'll give you some options here. One's inflation, uh, getting uh, labor, and then this advancing technology in farming that's running so fast, they're having a hard time keeping up with it. Well, I think if you look at input cost as an in inflation or just the ability to get the inputs. So this crop we have in the ground right now that we're harvesting is the highest inputs we've ever had. Inflation is the highest it's been in 40 years. So that is a challenge, you know, and we're working with our bankers to make sure that they have sufficient capital that they need to take advantage of that. And on the technology, you're right. It is advancing rapidly. We're trying to, in our universities, our community colleges, really stress education, you know, for our young people of all ages to become better trained to use in that technologies. The technology, on the other hand, will decrease input costs, will decrease labor costs, increase efficiency, because what we're looking at, and as you know, we've got to grow production at least 3% a year between now and 2050, every year consistently. Can only do that with better science, better innovation, better technology. And if you look at some of the things, look at John Deere, you know, they just, and others, and, you know, and, you know, Case IH and others looking at this technology, for instance, on spraying for weeds, it only sprays the weed, doesn't spray anything else. If you look at, you know, putting out fertilizer, it only fertilize where it's needed and the amount that it's needed. If you look at all these different informatics, that's how we're going to become more efficient and more profitable, but also more scientific. You know, as we tell people every day, agriculture is not 80 acres and a mule. It is high tech. It's high dollar. And it's going to continue to grow in that fashion because the future of supply and demand, the demand for food is growing faster than the supply. 
So we must augment what we are doing with technology. Labor is a huge issue, and that's why we're moving towards technology. The greater the technology, the less labor that you need. If you look at a modern John Deere cotton picker, clicking in probably eight seventy-five to nine hundred thousand dollars. Well, it replaces seven machines and fourteen people. It does it all. All you got to do is go out there and pick up that that module and put it on a module trailer and haul it. It does everything else. And so, if when you start looking at this different equipment, you see these new drones that will follow you, drone tractors, follows your harvesting. That eliminates one person. And you say, well, how can you afford that? So, well, you take, you know, five years of their salary and it's pretty easy to buy that machine. And so we are moving in that direction. And I think what you're going to find over time, there are going to be less jobs for the non-skilled worker. You know, Washington always tell you, oh, they just put them work on a pharmacy doing what? Let them drive a tractor. So are you out of your mind? You know, a non-skilled person on a quarter million dollar machine doesn't work that way. And so I think you're going to see more skills needed in agriculture and that the day of the non-skilled worker, that is going to be further minimized. And I think you're going to see more robotics, more technology, more science, more innovation and greater productivity and ultimately strong profitability. Do you find as we finish up here that uh, Louisiana gets misrepresented in uh, TV shows and uh, other oh, things? Oh, yes, of course. You you know, you can't confuse television with reality, you know, you know, and they come, you know, talked about us Creoles and, you know, and us Cajuns. And of course, we do have those in the northern part of the state who are proud to be rednecks. But when you look at Louisiana, we are a melting pot of cultures. And, you know, we're a very, very just dynamic people. And, you know, if you look at the oil field workers to the farmers and everything in between, it's a very dynamic state. You know, and, and of course, we have some great higher educational institutions and we're a strong state. But, of course, you can't pay attention to television too much because they're there for entertainment. Uh, and it's just like the Walton and Johnson show. You know, they were chewing on me for something someone else did. He said, you got to understand, Doc, we're not the news. We're entertainment. I said, well, people think you're the news. So get it right. Amen. Huh. Michael Strain, it's been a pleasure to talk to you today. I appreciate you being on our podcast. And uh, we, uh, we, we hope, you, if you wish, you keep doing the job you're doing now. But if you wish to do any other jobs, uh, it sounds like you've got the background and the determination to get them done. Well, thank you. Thank you. It just doesn't get much better than the Commissioner of Agriculture in Louisiana. So you need to come on down, and I will treat you to some of the finest gumbo you have ever had or a beautiful oyster po' boy and some Leidenheimer French bread with a little bit of Tabasco mayonnaise and some Creole tomatoes. How's that? <laughs> that sounds awfully good. Mm-hmm. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much for talking to me. Take care. Alrighty. This episode of Better Than Nothing is brought to you by Concept by Iowa Hearing. Your hearing is our priority. Visit iowahearing.com or call 877 877- for a free hearing screening. That's 877-955-4020. Thanks for listening to Better Than Nothing. I hope you stayed awake for most of it and liked what you heard. If you'd like to tell me your thoughts or relate your memories, send it to kenroot at gmail.com. We'll try to put out one of these every week, and you can sign up with your podcast service to be reminded when the next one's available. As I now turn 73 years old, 
I've decided to have two kinds of days, good ones and great ones. See you next week for another episode of Better Than Nothing.